Assalamu alaikum rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Greetings of peace, loved ones worldwide, wherever you may be. Love and light to you and to yours. You're tuned in to Path and Present Podcast, and I'm your host, Baraka Blue. Uh, we have a wonderful podcast coming up for you with Shems Friedlander, who is um, someone I've known for a number of years, and his son Nuri is also a friend of mine. Um, he is a an author. Many of you might know him through his books, but he's also a painter, photographer, filmmaker, educator, um, multidisciplined um, artist, and someone who's been on the path for many, many decades and has a, a really wonderful journey. And uh, he shared that journey with me. So look forward to uh, sharing it with you. Before I do, though, I want to do make a few announcements. Um, the first one is that uh, we have the second annual Drawing Near to the Beloved Poetry and Praise of the Prophet wasallam workshop, which um, is, is through Rumi Center for Spirituality and the Arts. We did it last year as the first one, and um, basically it's a 30-day online molid celebrating the beloved وسلم, coming together sharing poetry studying the great tradition of praise poetry starting with the companions themselves talking about the alchemical power of you know uh, praise and studying the life and legacy of the beloved and um, you know one of the most special aspects of it is that we have a number of guest scholars and guest artists each week. So guest scholars include Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, uh, Dr. Timothy Winter, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Rad, Idris Watts, Dr. Alu Damini. And artists include Amir Suleiman, Sakina Douglas, Brother Ali, Pearls of Islam, Ali Keeler from Ferdos Ensemble. So it's really an amazing um cast of people coming together, people who are specialists in the tradition themselves, who are artists, practitioners themselves, sharing the living tradition of poetry and praise of the Prophet So if you're a writer, or even if you're not a writer, if you're just someone who is a lover of the beloved, it's, it's a really blessed way to celebrate and to make the month of Rabi'l Awal special. So you can find more information or register on RumiCenterWorkshops.com. Uh, yeah, RumiCenterWorkshops.com. And this starts November 3rd and goes for 30 days. So uh, come celebrate the month of Rabi'l Awal and the blessing of the beloved. Peace be upon him with us, inshallah. Uh, other than that, let's see. This week I will be at... NYU Abu Dhabi. NYU has a campus in Abu Dhabi, and I'll be there uh, for a week-long residency doing a series of classes. Um, we'll be doing a film screening of The Alchemist of Happiness and discussing that film, which is about the life and legacy of Imam Ghazali. Um, I'll also be giving a lecture on the poetry and philosophy of Maulana Rumi, and then I'll be teaching a poetry writing workshop. So if you're in the region, if you're in the Emirates, uh, come on through. And um, you can find more information about that on my social media. Uh, 
Um, yeah, we'll give you the podcast now. Um, but before we do, last thing, I wanted to thank everyone who supports the podcast. Um, everyone who is a supporter through Patreon is the reason that we're able to do this and do this on a consistent basis. Uh, so we want to send special love and light to everyone who supports through Patreon. Patreon is a site that allows you to support um, content creators and Path and Present has a um, page on Patreon where you can support monthly a um, dollar or five or ten dollars a month um, helps make it make this possible so uh, thank you for those who are supporting and if you would like to support please visit uh, pathandpresent.com uh, I mean what is it patreon.com slash pathandpresent yep alright y'all one more So, mashallah, um, yeah, it's a blessing to sit with you, and uh, I know I've been wanting to do this for some time, and I've been uh, flaking, as you as you called it, so it's true. Um, so, happy to finally be here with you. Alhamdulillah, everything in its right time. Mm -hmm. um, so, I'm curious about your journey i know we've talked a little bit about it and i've had the blessing of reading um your book your memoirs winter harvest which is kind of little snapshot snapshots into moments in your life and it's interesting because it's not even chronological it just is kind of how the memory works where you remember like oh yeah i remember when i was 15 then and i was 33 and then i was here and there so it kind of like traces your journey so um, just by way of introduction, um, and you could speak about this, this book if you want, but you've had a very interesting journey thus far, and I'm sure it continues to get more and more interesting, but uh, I'd love if you could just share a little bit about your origin story, so to speak. Well, first of all, I think... Um, this question that keeps coming up when everyone is interviewed of, of uh, how you became a Muslim um, has gotten quite banal to me. And uh, I think it's absolutely the wrong question. And the right question should really be, why did you become a Muslim? Mm -hmm. um, what was in your life and what, what touched you in such a way that you uh, wanted to embrace Islam? And, and I embraced Islam in the West. Um, it, is, it was more, more that um, I met somebody. You know, I had been involved in, in the spiritual path in the West for many, many, many years. Um, all of the, at a certain point in the 60s, the spiritual energy from the East started moving to the West. Mm -hmm. And we started seeing gurus in New York and sheikhs in New Jersey and you know, rabbis in Chicago and all of these holy and spiritual and pious beings uh, were bringing teachings that originated in the West, in the East, 
to the West. Mm -hmm. And we sort of were at a point, most of us, where we were not enamored by the lifestyle of our parents and, and as most generations always have some problem with that. But we wanted to find a way um, to, to ourselves. We found, wanted to find an inner road to, our, to mm. ourselves and mm. reason for being. And this all occurred uh, with the energy that these people brought with them. I mm -hmm. mean, they, they brought this energy, they gave us this energy and we gave them our attention. And that was a nice exchange. Mm. And with that, we, we had experiences and learned things about meditation and prayer and, um, and not rushing through life and, and making the value of life monetary instead of uh, the interior value of what's the preciousness of our heart mm -hmm. and why we were created. So that was sort of like uh, the state my generation was sort of in at that time. Um, and we were very open, you know. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was the time of flower power and mm -hmm. San Francisco and sort of free love and everything was... Uh, but we were really in a search. It was an inner search. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, a kind of, not a full negation, but a, but a sliding away from the mannerism of... of working nine to five at some job one is not interested in mostly, many, many times. Sort of like what Henry David Thoreau said in Civil Disobedience when he, when he noted that most, most men live lives of quiet desperation. You know, and added to that from the cradle to the grave. And I think we didn't want that. We didn't want to live a life of quiet desperation. We wanted to have some meaning brought into our life and we found that spirituality was one serious way to to uh, influence us toward what we would felt was a better life yeah and i mean that's so interesting because and i'm fascinated but you know about this time period the counterculture 60s and 70s for a lot of reasons um and it's so transformational and of course in every age, in every society, there's always those kind of like seekers who start to seek for meaning and kind of reject the dominant uh, worldly culture and, you know, that track of, you know, getting a job and acquiring more and, you know. But what's interesting about that period, 60s and 70s, is it became not only like a peripheral thing, but it became like dominant culture like counterculture became dominant culture in a, in a sense and i mean you know the number one uh singers and artists like bob dylan were anti-war and the like the beatles being the you know biggest pop stars they went to india to find a guru and that was on the front page of time and in all these magazines mm -hmm. so um yeah, I'm curious, what do you think it was about that moment that made that message of rejecting, you know, the dominant Western way of life and the forms of religion, like, and the, you know, militarism and all these things, rejecting, like, so much. What do you think it was that made it not just a marginal thing, but, like, capture a whole generation in that sense? 
I think part of it was that this energy was moving, the spiritual energy was moving from the east to the west, and it was like a wind, you know, uh, or rain, that everyone who drinks that rain is going to have a feeling of something else, you know. Um, so I, I think that was a great part of it, and... and uh, I think every generation goes through. We, we, if you look at what's happening today, you know, we have some 16-year-old girl from Europe, Greta Thunberg, who's now the leading spokesperson in the world for climate change. Mm -hmm. And realizing it took a 16-year-old girl to wake the world up that climate change is a very serious problem mm -hmm. and that we're all going to suffer negatively from it unless we take it in hand and deal with it. So we have those things, every, every generation has something that comes through. And I think ours was at that time just a spiritual turnover. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we were very much, at least the people I knew, were very much in the arts. And uh, I, I had started years and years before that in the Gurdjieff work. Yeah. When I was 19 years old, I met a Gurdjieff, teacher of Gurdjieff who mm -hmm. knew Gurdjieff and his name was Willem Nyland, and he, he was an amazing human being. And it was like a father figure to me. I was only 19. I was a teenager, believe it. You know? mm -hmm. um, and through that, you know, we learned through that, we learned about Krishnamurti, mm -hmm. and those people were around. We went to see, I sat with Krishnamurti, I sat with Willem Nyland, I sat with a lot of these people, these gurus that came. And, and uh, I remember one incident, it was in a retreat in the mountains of Shamani, and there was a Tibetan Buddhist giving a talk, and um, his name was Lama Chimi, I just remembered, and he, he gave this talk, and, and, and uh, afterwards I walked up to him and I said, uh, can I speak to you? And he says, oh, you were interested in my talk? And I said, well, actually I wasn't that interested in the talk. It was interesting, but it didn't move me that much, but what I really want to know about is how you folded that piece of paper at the end of your talk. <laughs> that's what I'm interested in mm. and he said ah well I've had students that haven't seen that come and we went off and sat on two big rocks on the mountains in Switzerland and he gave me a transmission he gave me some some mm. lessons mm. Um, so there's a responsibility not only in the teacher there's a responsibility in the one who wants to learn and and that's a very important thing that we should know it's like painting you know uh, I'm a painter but I can put something in a painting and you can look at that painting and you can get something in that from that painting that I didn't even intend. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make that any less valid. Mm -hmm. That's still part of the painting. Mm -hmm. So the painting is a result of the viewer and the painter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As a combination of both creates that painting. It's sort of like the taste of the apple is not in the apple. Mm -hmm. And the taste of the apple is not in the person. The taste of the apple emerges when the person and the apple gets together. Mm. There's a big message in that. Yeah, that's you know, powerful. That, sure. that we, if, we, if we keep separation, it, unity is what, is what brings out the taste and flavor of life. Mm -hmm. Community, unity, mm -hmm. togetherness. Mm -hmm. We need other people to live. Yes, some people can live alone mm -hmm. and even live in a cave and mm -hmm. whatever, but that's not the purpose that Allah has put us here for. Mm -hmm. You know, he put us here really to be together and in that togetherness to understand why we're here, which is to know him. Hmm. Yeah, so the Gurdjieff um, work or movement, um, 
I'm curious about that, and I've read a little bit about it in your book and in a few other places. But at that time, was it, you know, widespread? And for those that aren't familiar with it, can you explain a little bit, just an introduction to that kind of worldview and the teachings? Well, Gurdjieff was a Greek-Caucasian who came to the West. Mm. He had been in Russia and St. Petersburg and people like um, uh, P.D. Uspensky, uh, who was a great mathematician and thinker of the time, met him and uh, a number of other people uh, in, in Britain that were known as sort of spiritual seekers met him and, and slowly he started to make an inroad with these people and uh, it was a work that he gathered together or was put together by, by Gurdjieff from his travels. He traveled to Cairo, he traveled to Asia, throughout Asia, to Afghanistan, to all these, you know, secret and sacred places and brought back a teaching and that teaching was about remembering yourself, knowing your, who you are, you know, why you're here and um, I mean, he wrote this incredible book, Meetings, uh, uh, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, called All and Everything, right? Which is some eight or nine hundred page book. And it's a kind of an amazing story. Within that story is, is the hidden teaching of what he was talking about. And he uses a lot of Islamic terms. He did a couple of characters, Hussein and Hassan, with two brothers in, mm -hmm. in, in it. And you have to read deeper. Most of these, these, uh, books that were written at that time by masters emulated in a sense without even knowing it the structure of like sacred texts like the Quran mm -hmm. because in the Quran you can read it on one level and you you get something but there are seven deeper levels mm -hmm. and there are very very few people who can go past the third or fourth level mm -hmm. and really understand the essence of what is said. after all when we read the Quran we should shiver, I think, and tremble. When we, if we understand what it really is, you know, the, these we are reading, at the same time reading and listening to the words of Allah. This is this is a revealed book. You know, it's a revelation. It's not a book. You know, and within that revelation are many different layers. That's why we need sheikhs and teachers and masters and people who spent their lives understanding that um, to touch those spots in ourselves that can mm -hmm. relate to that. So, so Gurdjieff, I don't think it was what we would call a, a huge um, teaching. Uh, there were a lot of people involved in different countries, but it was always kept sort of secret in a way. You know, they would, they didn't go out and announce that they were Gurdjieffians. Or, um, but like anything else, it began to dissipate and there were problems and mm -hmm. some teachers felt they understood it one way and others felt they understood it another way. And mm -hmm. there were splits and these splits involved in, in other kind of things. And then it got to another generation with people who never met Gurdjieff. And, mm -hmm. um, but it has its validity within a certain area, like many of these teachings. They're, they're like Gurdjieff used to say, we take a few crumbs off the idea table and we make that a teaching. Mm. You know, so they've 
many people have taken a few crumbs from Islam and a few crumbs from Sufism, a few mm-hmm. crumbs from, you know, uh, Hinduism mm-hmm. and a few, few crumbs from this and that. And they make that the teaching and um, soon you're drifting off in another direction mm-hmm. uh, and, and not seeing the essence of what... Mm-hmm. A real teaching is a, is a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. A real teaching takes a life to do. Um, and we're given this life, uh, really, when you think about why you're here, there, there's a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam that says, I was a hidden treasure and wished to be known, so I created man in order to be known. Now, th- this really is the answer to life. People walk around troubled in their minds and their souls and, mm-hmm. you know, their bodies thinking, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? You know, like I'm... And the essence is, is right there, that Allah says he created us because he wished to be known, which means that he created a being that has the ability to know him. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've been given the ability to know him. And we, we know him because he says, I'm, I'm secret, Allah is secretly hidden within his names. Mm-hmm. So through the tawheed, through the repetition of the name of Allah, we can get to know Allah. We can get to know, we perhaps can see in some way that which is unseen. Hmm. Because to see the unseen is impossible. And the only thing way you can see the unseen is through something that's seen. So we're, we're stuck in that place, you know. Hmm. But there is a methodology. Islam is a lifestyle. Hmm. And it's, it's a lifestyle really that's very much misinterpreted today mm-hmm. and misunderstood today, even by people that call themselves Muslims. You know, mm-hmm. There's no wholesale killing in Islam. There's no wholesale harming anyone else in Islam. Mm-hmm. It, it's just not allowed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, If someone attacks you, you're allowed to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's never that you should attack someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very important to understand, you know, we, we, we know before we eat, we should say Bismillah you know, in the name of Allah. It's a simple phrase, right? But it, what it does is it connects us and the food and the nourishment and the strength that comes from it to Allah. Mm-hmm. You know, how many people remember that? Mm-hmm. You know, and if you do, do you remember at the end to say, Alhamdulillah, all praises to Allah. He has given this food. You know, we think the food comes from the supermarket. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I think there's a necessity to bring it closer to one's heart, mm. bring that teaching closer to one's heart. And I have found that, for me, Sufism is the path, you know, and there is no, I'll emphatically state this, mm. there is no Sufism without Islam. You cannot be a Sufi unless you're a Muslim. Mm-hmm. You don't have, to, you can be a Muslim and not have to be a Sufi, but you cannot be a Sufi because a Sufism is based on La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Right? Mm-hmm. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his mm-hmm. prophet. Right? Yeah. So his, the messenger of Allah is part of the teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can't separate that. Yeah. And he's the master of all the masters. He's the spiritual teacher of all the spiritual teachers. He's the source of all the Sufi orders, for sure. Um, yeah, no, I love this. And it's so true that, you know, there are layers and the outward acts of worship, they have their, you know, like a lot of people, when they say inshallah, it means like, no, I'm not going to do it, right? But when the 
saints say, inshallah, they're actually experiencing that, like, I don't have any power to even take my next breath unless it's well, from Allah. Well, in the Quran, in the Quran, it, it says, you know, never, never do anything, never say anything without mm-hmm. prefacing it with inshallah, mm-hmm. if it is the will of Allah, because we then understand that this is not our will, yeah. you know, um, that there is a guide, there's something behind us. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, we think uh, when you move to Cairo, you think, when I moved to Cairo, maybe I thought, oh, I'm moving to Cairo. I made that decision. I'm going to get mm-hmm. a job in Cairo. I'm going to work at the university and I'll, you know. But this is all within the scope of the will of Allah. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, and like in the first discourse in the Masnavi, Rumi says, when he's talking about the doctors that say they're going to heal the sick girl, they say that, you know, they're all the best doctors say, we'll, we'll heal her. But then he says, but they didn't say inshallah. And so they had no power. And then he says something interesting. He said, and I don't just mean that they didn't say inshallah, because some people, they don't actually say it on their lips, but in their being, in their heart, they're experiencing inshallah. It's, it's supposed to transform you until you mm-hmm. actually experience that, that, like, you know, complete reliance, complete need that everything is within that unfolding of Allah and that our, that we are nothing. We're pure need, you know. We're the fuqara. Well, we are something. We're the creation of Allah. Mm-hmm. And within that creation, we're allowed certain things, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I had a student in, in, when I was teaching in Cairo, um, he used to come to my office and I had all these Sufi books and books on Islam and books, you know, all, all around on different spiritual paths. And he kept coming back and he was sort of taken by the, you know, the ambience of the place. You know, I had an office, I burned incense and it was like a very nice feeling mm-hmm. in, in, in that space. Um, and one day he says, oh, uh, like Dr. Shem, you're my sheikh. I said, no, no, mm-hmm. I'm not your sheikh. And he says, no, 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 I really, I feel that you're my sheikh. I said, no, I'm not your sheikh. And again he said it, and again I said, no, I'm not. And it, when he said it the next time, I said, look, let's assume that I'm your sheikh. Mm-hmm. Your sheikh is saying to you, he's not your sheikh. <laughs> I said, but I understand what you, you're interested in something. You, want, you feel something, you want something to open in you, and I understand that. And you're correct as far as that's concerned. Mm-hmm. I said, but I can tell you everything I know in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I said, and then you don't even have to come walk up the five flights of stairs to get to my office. You know? uh, and I said, what I know for sure, without any doubt in my mind, my heart, every fiber of my being, I know la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. I know that. I know a few other things, and I know about a lot of things, mm-hmm. but really knowing something is different than knowing about something. Mm-hmm. And I said, I know when I get up in the morning, I put my shirt on, every time I button my shirt, every button, I say the name of Allah. And at night when I take that shirt off, every unbutton of every button, I say the name of Allah. When I walk down the stairs from my office to the street to go teach a class in the university, every time my foot hits the stair, I remember Allah. I said, these are the things I know. 
And I know that when you, if, if you want to do what the cook of Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi did, who was also his Khalifa, Atesh Basveli, when he made a big pot of bulgar or cooked meat or fish, whatever he cooked, grains, rice, salad, anything he made, anything he cooked, he took a wooden spatula and with the wooden flat end of the wood, he wrote the name of Allah into the food. Whether it was soup, rice, it didn't matter. And by writing that into the food, he introduced a certain energy, not only to himself, he gained from it, but to everyone that ate that food. They were nourished by something that had the name of Allah written on it. Now that's something everybody can do. Everybody can do that. The point is, do we do it? You know, we know to do something like that, but do we do it? You know, or has the magnetism of this world mm. completely drained us of all possibilities? Mm. You know, I think not. I think, but we have to slow down, stop. You know, there's a hadith that says that that haste haste is from the shaitan, and slowness is from Allah. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't earn a living and you shouldn't work. No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that we have to take time in our day to sit quietly and breathe in and breathe out and remember Allah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we do this and we open ourselves in that way, we'll see that life can change and all of the loneliness and, 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 and depression that a lot of these young people are feeling, in my opinion, is because we've created a huge gap between ourselves and Allah. And that gap is filled with loneliness and depression and being upset and anxieties. You know, Mark Twain, who was a great, as you know, Samuel Clemens, he was a great satirist, right? American satirist. Mm -hmm. he, he, once, he once wrote, most of my problems I have never encountered. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. they're, they're in your mind. They're in our mind. Most of them don't actually appear. But we feed them with our attention. Anything you feed grows. Mm -hmm. If you put water on a plant, if you feed an animal... It, you feed yourself, you grow, everything grows, right? Mm -hmm. If you feed your loneliness, that loneliness will grow. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's important that we have to back up a little bit, you know. And unfortunately, we, we've been taken by the magnetism of the cell phones. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're excellent for what they can do. They can do a, a lot of things, but... You know, there's a, there's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that says, anxiety is half of aging. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is half of aging. Wow. Mm -hmm. You know. And th that little phone that you hold in your pocket and in your hand and take everywhere from the bedroom to the bathroom to wherever you go is filled with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it's filled with the recipe to your loneliness the recipe to being unhappy because everything is based on what someone else thinks and they don't really think that they don't care 
you know, it's a momentary reaction to something that's minute and people just sit there fiddling with their phones for half the day. This time will never come back. You know, people have stopped reading books. You know, when they want to read a book, they'll read, they'll read something on the, on, on the phone, you know. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, to me, it's a sadness that, that's yeah. occurred, you know. Like, um, Yeah, I don't know if you saw, there was this, like, photo journalism, uh, like, project or article that I read that it was just photographs of people across America, um, but they had, like, airbrushed the phones out of the pictures. So it showed, like, a couple at a dinner table just staring at their hands <laughs> yeah. and how insane it looked. Like, they're both not looking at each other. They're just looking yeah. at their hand. Or, you know, a mother sitting next to her children, but she's not interacting with the children. She's looking at the phone, and the child's looking at this big screen, but the, the screen's gone. So it's just, they're just looking into midair. But it showed, like, it, it was a powerful visual. Children imitate their parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a normal, natural thing. Little, little babies, they just do whatever their parents do. They imitate their emotions. When they can speak, they imitate their speech, whatever they're... So if you're holding your phone all the time, and your child see that, your, your one or two-year-old child is just going to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Want the phone and hold the phone and play with it and move it and mm -hmm. all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. If you're reading a book, they're going to want to read a book. Yeah. Yeah. So... I'm not saying throw away your phone, but I'm saying be under more understanding of the influence. It's like secondhand smoke. You know, if you really care, if, if you care about your children, you don't smoke in the house. Because secondhand smoke can really kill them. It can influence them, make them sick. So to, to like tie it in with the tra trajectory, so that 60s and 70s, and I know you mentioned to me that I think you, you first came to Konya, was it 1971? Is that what you told me? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, 70. So how does this happen? So, and this is really interesting because, as you mentioned, counterculture 60s, all this Eastern spirituality is coming in. You know, you have gurus coming, you have lamas and Zen Buddhist teachers, and you know, um, and you have people going to India you have all this back and forth, this opening. You have books being published and books being translated, right? Um, Be Here Now, an autobiography of a yogi and all these things, right? And everyone's reading it and it's like people experimenting with psychedelics and the art and the, you know. But there's an interesting, like, segment. Of course, it's more popular. People say, oh, people found a guru or they found a Buddhist teacher. But there's a number of people who went to the Near East, right, and, and found Islam, usually through the door of Sufism. So how did, how was those streams, how did those streams kind of come across your radar, and how did you find yourself going to these Well, areas? I was, as I said before, very much part of that spiritual movement um, in the 60s and 70s, and, you know, I, I knew Ram Dass very well, and... Uh, Khan and all those people that kind of uh, went from here to there and came back. And I, and I remember Ramdas had an enormous influence in the young people mm -hmm. uh, of uh, that generation. Um, he went, he found Neem Krola Baba. I mean, if you read Be Here Now, you, you know the whole story. I won't repeat his story, but he found a, a guru, you know, and, and 
And at the end of many amazing experiences that he had with him in India, he came back and shared that with the young people in, in New York and California and then the rest of the country. And part of it was, I mean, for example, Neem Karoli Baba gave him his blanket that he meditated on. Now that's a very sacred piece of clothing. It's like a, the, the sure. sheikh that gives a herka. Mm -hmm. You know, um, in Sufism, the sheikh will give a herka. It, a herka doesn't necessarily have to be a cloak, which is what the word means, but it could be any item of clothing. It could be a hat, it could be shoes, it could be a cloak, it could be a shirt, it could be any item of clothing. And it also can be a form of knowledge. Mm. The herka can also be a form of knowledge that the sheikh gives to the murid. So Ramdas came back with this sacred cloth, let's say, that Neem Kroli Baba meditated on. We all know that if you sit in meditation, as the same thing occurs when, you, when you're um, in Zikr Allah, in a, in, a, in a Devran, or in a Qiyam, when you're making Zikr Allah, or even sitting alone in your room, uh, what you sit on and what you wear, if it's natural fiber, cotton, wool, um, small particles of energy leave your body as you, your state rises. And this energy penetrates into natural fiber and into wood. That's why you can enter a room sometimes and feel, oh, this is a very special place. You don't know why, but maybe people have meditated there or prayed there for a long time, you know, and that energy remains in that room and you walk into it. And the same thing, like certain dervish orders, you wear a particular kind of vest, you wear that vest all the time, you know. And when you put that vest on, you almost feel like you're into that energy, just permeates you that. So with that, knowing all of that, Ramdas came back with this blanket, right? Which was a sacred blanket that Neem Karoli Babi sat and meditated on for many, many years. And instead of wrapping around himself and keeping it, he started to unstrand mm. the pieces of wool that were woven to make the carpet. And he got hundreds and hundreds of little pieces of wool and cut them up in little two-inch pieces and gave them out to everybody that came around. Hmm. Right? So it was like that sharing also, you know, hmm. of the herka, of the knowledge, right? That you come back and yes, he gave lots of talks and he gave but he also gave this little, anyone came there, he gave them this little pieces. Like sometimes... Uh, Tibetan masters will give you a red string and you can tie it around your mm -hmm. neck and you're not supposed to take it off. You just wear it, wash with it, shower with it, every, and finally, eventually, it will disintegrate of its own life span, mm -hmm. let's say, right? Um, so there, there's that kind of exchange that happens between, uh, like Mevlana says, uh, the thirsty man is searching for water, but water is also searching for the thirsty man. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for a sheikh, but that sheikh is also looking for somebody. Mm -hmm. Like Shamsi Tabriz was looking mm -hmm. for somebody, right? Mm -hmm. he fi finally, when he swooned in front of uh, the, uh, the street in Konya, when they met, mm -hmm. 
You know, it wasn't because he was so shocked that Mevlana knew the answer to his question. No, what it was was that he finally found the one he was looking for. So this is how my generation, when you look back, it's interesting to see even the people that stayed within various paths that occurred yeah. and the people who had another gender, their own children. And what happened to those? Some children, some of those children followed in the paths of their parents. Mm -hmm. Some of them went and became stock market brokers or mm -hmm. people in you know, mm -hmm. um, in the tech industry or mm -hmm. whatever, which fine, but it didn't mean that they followed necessarily. But, um, but there's all, also some, I believe there's some seed or some thing that comes off of you that enters your children, mm. you know, sure. and whether they use it or even know about it or not, it's there. So mm -hmm. there's a great responsibility in who you are and what you do in your life. Sure. Not only to yourself, but to your own children that you... Mm. So I know you're living in Turkey now, but you've also... Turkey's been a big part of your journey and the Jirahi Order and Mablano Rumi. So how did that come to be that you first came... To Turkey and first came to be um, involved with the Sufi masters here. In, let's see, 1972, I think, the Mevlevi were on a world tour and they came to the Brooklyn Academy of Music for, I think, a week or 10 nights, something like that. And I went, naturally. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of their evening, um, I went back behind the stage and introduced myself and and quickly made friends with a couple of people there. One musician uh, in particular, Nezi Uzel, who, uh, Rahmatullah, is not alive at the moment, but he, he, um, he opened a lot of doors for me. To, into Turkish Sufism and we became close friends during that 10 day period mm -hmm. and I invited them they were staying in some hotel near Columbus Circle and I had a coach house in New York that I used as a studio and a place to, to live it was a building that was behind a building you couldn't see it uh, and, and I invited them all musicians the, the Semizens the musicians everyone I said after, after the Sema you come back to my house, we'll have tea, we'll have coffee, we'll play music, we'll uh, have something to eat, you know, like, and just make sohbet, just mm -hmm. talk to each other. And and they all did, like all of them. So my house was crowded every night after the mm. their performance. Maybe 25 people would come storming in. Um, and we got very close then, you know, we made zikrs and we'd sat, send out for pizza and we'd eat, we'd eat something and drink a lot of tea and, and have sohbet and talk and, and, and it was very relaxed and very nice and it was good for them because they're, they're living in hotels all the time and they're going from here and they don't have any human connection in a certain way, you know, so, um, they came, and then when they left, you know, the Sheikh uh, Selman Tuzan was his name at that time. 
And he said, uh, when, you, when you come to Turkey, please come to Konya and visit us and, and um, come to Feshebi Arus, which is the, the time that's celebrated for, for the passing of Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. It's sort of called Feshebi Arus, the wedding night, mm-hmm. right? Which means the time when he became in union with his beloved, with Allah. Uh, somehow I did. And that was that was in like October, the end of October, beginning of November. I can't remember the exact, you know. And then in December came very quickly. Um, I decided, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. And a friend of mine uh, went went with me. We went together, and um, came to Istanbul. And then we went to Konya, and it's sort of I've described it as going from the city of 100,000 traffic lights to the city of one traffic light, because that's what Konya was like at that time. It was really like a town. It's not the city it is today. There's skyscrapers and lots of big apartment buildings. And it, was, it was very different than those days. And, um, you know, I had gone to Istanbul, met Nezi, and then Nezi was going to Konya because he was one of the musicians playing at the Sema, and so I was quickly brought into the midst of uh, the people there, and and quite welcomed, you know, because I, they were saying, well, you know, we will travel all over the world, and you're the only one that took us into their house. We're like this. This is how we are. So we we felt very good, you know, being able to be welcomed into your house and to be given tea and coffee and food, and you know, we were comfortable and. So they made me very comfortable there, and everybody sort of seemed to know me. And, uh, and that was the beginning, and that few nights later um, was the beginning of the Shebi Arus, just before it. Uh, and we were in the lobby of the Hotel Shaheen. Uh, I don't even know if it's still there, but it's on the main street, Mevlana Chadesa, and all the dervishes were staying there. We were staying there also. And this burly gentleman walks in with his overcoat and a white hat on and three guys next to him surrounding him like <laughs> um, also with little white hats on. And everybody started running over to kiss his hand. I thought to myself, oh, he, he must be somebody. He must be some, you know. Well, it turned out that was Sheikh Muzaffar. Uh, and... and so I went over and greeted him, he greeted me, and that seemed to be it for the moment. And, and that, that night there was going to be a zikr that he would lead at a, someone's apartment in Konya, and people were chosen who could come because it was a very small space. Um, and I was asked to go and I went. And it was, although December, the apartment, because there were so many people crowded in, there may have been 75 or 80 people in this tiny apartment, was very hot, you know, mm-hmm. and I was sort of pasted against one of the oven walls, and the, the several dervishes that came with Muzaffar Effendi, and he sat in a circle, and some Mevlevis joined the circle, and there were other Mevlevis standing around them with instruments to play. It was going to be as everybody else was sort of wherever they could be to witness this, right? And I thought I I, I can't just stay against this wall in the heat. I can't breathe. And I don't know what led me to do it. 
something. But, and I, I just went between Muzaffar Effendi and his Khalifa, and I sort of nudged them aside and planted myself between them. Muzaffar Effendi just looked at me and he didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. Okay, if Allah sent you there, you're here, you know? Mm -hmm. And a zikr started, and I very quickly fell into the rhythm of the zikr, and it, it felt like a very normal thing for me to do. You know, I felt really at home. You know? mm -hmm. um, and it went on for a few hours. And afterwards, Muzaffar Effendi turned to me and he, he said, uh, you make zikr like us. And, and he kissed my eyes. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want you to come visit me in Istanbul. I said, inshallah, I'm, I'm, I'm be in Istanbul in a week. And he meticulously wrote down exactly where I was to go and where to find him and like this. And then I went, of course, you know, and, and that was sort of the beginning. Mm. Um, and I kept going to his bookshop every day, you know, and there was sohbets uh, in the afternoon. And and, um, and the first time I saw him pray, I said, I want to do that, mm. you know. Uh, it was an amazing experience, you know. He, I felt he wasn't praying for himself, he was praying for everybody, mm. you know. And, it just can. It was just in this tiny bookshop. You know. mm. It was only room for one person to pray, and he prayed, and we all sat around and went. And that was sort of the introduction to sort of Turkish Sufism, which I kept going back there um, every year, actually, all the time, you know. Um, but but the next time I went was the next next December, mm. and. Um, so I had met Muzaffar Fendi in December, and Tosin Baba met him in the June preceding that particular December. And um, I got a call one day in New York, and this is Tosin Barak, and um, Muzaffar Fendi called me, and he said, you're coming to, to uh, Istanbul to see him? I said, yes. He said, well, he needs some medicine, and I've gotten the medicine, and he asked if you would please bring it for him. I said, of course I will. And, and so Tosin came to my house in New York, and that's how we met. Mm. Um, and, and we became very close friends over 50 years mm. uh, before he passed away just a year and a half ago. Mm. Um, so, and, and I became very close in the inner circle somehow. You know, like, uh, I was quickly invited into the inner circle and, and um, remained there. and. Sefer Effendi was made my teacher by Muzaffar Effendi and, and whenever I was there I would sit with him, go to his house and we'd sit together and mm. it was that kind of... So that, that was how I sort of got sort of involved in the Jirahis. And so for those that don't know um, the Jirahi order or about Muzaffar Effendi maybe you could just share a little bit about the Jirahi order and... Uh, and just uh, what it was like to be with Muzaffar Effendi, because I've heard so many amazing stories and read books about him, and he's really a larger-than-life individual. He was larger-than-life. There's no question about it. He was that expression. I mean, <laughs> when he entered a room, it's like if a movie star entered the room. Everybody would turn, and there was an energy that was created, maybe more from the people than from mm. the person himself. But with him... He entered a room and he brought that energy and there was no way you could deny there was somebody 
of a rare quality that had just stepped into that room. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen, I've been with him in, on on Hajj and Umrah, and even when he just walks into the into the mosque, you know, the, the Prophet's mosque, people are just looking like, oh, that must it must be a great sheikh, you know, or somebody, you know, even though they had no idea who he was, he just had that presence about him, you know, and uh, that sort of very high Islamic confidence and being a Sufi master, he just embodied a teaching within him. Mm-hmm. And with every step he took, that t- teaching just flowed, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Um, so he was like that, you know. And, and of course, when you're with him, like when you're with anyone, like if you don't know them, there's an illusion of them. If you sort of know them, and like we go for coffee every night with him and Bayezid and sit around all night long having coffee and they would all smoke cigarettes and and make soch bed like this and it was just part of a part of an element, you know? And and because um, if you come from the outside and don't know what's going on or don't know what's happened, then that then you create a sort of it's, there's an expression that says the sheikh can't fly, but the but the marids give him wings, hmm. you know that, that mm-hmm. kind of an attitude. Um, but Muzaffar Fendi was, without doubt, a, a very very special human being, and and he was a great sheikh, and and um, I learned more from him than any other human being in my life, hmm. you know. And the sadness for me when he passed was for me that that stopped in a certain way, mm. you know. Um, he was always making soft. Whatever he talked about, there was a lesson. You know, whatever, you know, even if he walked, there was a lesson in that, if he, you know. Mm. Um, mm. So so he, he was the embodiment of a Sufi master. Mm-hmm. And, and he was walking around us, you know. And, and yet he had... He had enormous compassion, you know. He, had, he just was a very loving, very powerful, but a very loving being. And um, he was like trained in. Like, he was a scholar of the outward sciences, and that, you know, wasn't he like the imam of a mosque at, for a time? And... Well, he he was first. He was an orphan. His father mm-hmm. died when he was six. Within six weeks or six months of his life he was and he was orphaned at a young age and um, uh, and as he grew up you know he was taken over by certain sheikhs Sami Effendi uh, Ismail Haki Effendi these were people that took him and they were like a father image as well as a sheikh to, mm-hmm. to him you know and he was taught he was a hafiz of the Quran he was taught Quran he was taught he, he went and studied, he studied the music, the Allahis, the sacred Allahis, and he uh, studied uh, fiqh, and he studied hadith, and he was very knowledgeable about all mm-hmm. all of this, you know. And he was, I mean, you could see as you look back at his life that he was obviously someone who was chosen mm-hmm. to become what he was going to become, that he already was that, but he had to... F- take all the steps, let's say, mm-hmm. to get to that point, which he was guided into. Um, so at first he was a, 
imam of a small mosque, and then that mosque collapsed or was burned or something. And and and, and he grew up very poor, actually. It was don't forget it was the First World War. Mm-hmm. You know, he was born in the middle of the First World War, so there was great poverty, and you know there, there was trauma. There was people, great transition, right? He, because the Ottoman Empire just falling. And that's then, right. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just a war. It was like an empire had fallen and the, the, the structure of everything was collapsing and mm. monetarily people were struggling and, and economically people were struggling and and nobody knew the direction mm. things were going to go in. I mean, he was born in ni- the end of 1916, which was the middle, basically the middle of the war. You know? mm. um, so he struggled a lot in his youth and... and, and, and did not have an easy upbringing, you know. His his uh, mother at one time wanted to send him to military school because she felt that he could at least be taken care of. He would be given clothes. He would be given food. Mm-hmm. You know, he would learn a trade. He would have some way of making a living. And then she had a dream, and then the dream, the sheikh. She never named him, but this sheikh came to her and said, "Do not send him to military school. Send him." to become a Hafiz. And so he studied to become a Hafiz, he became a Hafiz. Then as I say, he had that small mosque that collapsed and then he um, for some time was the Imam, uh, he was the Imam of that mosque. For some time he became the Imam during Ramadan of, of the mosque at Sulaymaniyah, the great Sulaymaniyah mosque, mm. Imam Sanan's mosque. Um, and then uh, he became a bookseller and, and he learned about bookselling, and he had a shop in the uh, Sahafla Chadesi, which is the booksellers' area in the covered bazaar. And, and he became, he started to get more wealthy because he had a knowledge of, of antiquated books, of mm-hmm. old books and the value when people didn't know. Don't forget, we went, they went through a period that was just about to be, you know, that, that began, and for 25 years, from from the time of, of the collapse of the beginning of the republic, let's say, mm-hmm. till, till the early 50s, when he was a bookseller, there were no books allowed. Nothing was allowed to be written in Arabic. Mm-hmm. You know, in one night, all of the calligraphers were out of work. Mm-hmm. They couldn't write. Hafiz, I mean, Hatat Aytaj, Hamid Aytaj, was a great Turkish calligrapher. And, and in one night, he, he went from writing Quranic phrases and ayats of the Quran and Hadith to writing book jacket covers and advertising because mm-hmm. nobody was allowed to write in Arabic that, th- those. So there was a, there was a dearth of, of, of uh, you know, it became like a desert of that. And he became very knowledgeable about those old books. So... When in the 50s they were allowed to be sold in bookstores and things changed a little bit, you know, he was an expert at that. So he he had a knew their value when others didn't know their value, you know, and he became sort of relatively well off, you know, as a result of that. And then he was made the imam of a small, very small mosque in the bazaar, um, which was so tiny. We used to go there on Friday and you you could only pray by touching the back mm-hmm. of the person in front of you because it was just so so crowded people were shoulder to shoulder and you know like in a sardine can mm-hmm. 
Um, and then he, he was this very well-known bookseller, and then he became, he became a very well-known sheikh. And, you know, like, uh, yeah, so um, would you like, tie this in with the Jirahi order? And I know, like I've heard from you and a few others, like the unique history of the Jirahis tying in with this period because the Sufi orders are obviously like incredibly influential and powerful um, in the Ottoman period. And then overnight, just, you know, it wasn't just, you can't write in Arabic, but all of these are closed down. It's illegal to be a Sufi. It's illegal mm-hmm. to be a Dede or a Sheikh. Or, mm-hmm. um, and so that happens, but the Jirahi order somehow has like an adaptation that allows it to preserve the tradition in a way that other orders weren't. Well, uh, Faradin Effendi, who was the sheikh at the time of the, his father was a sheikh before him, he knew nothing. He didn't have any trade. He was only a sheikh his whole life. He did. When that happened, he didn't know what to do. Even you know, mm. um, but he preserved a sense of. I mean, the durgas were closed. Mm-hmm. No question. All the Durgas were closed. Some people met quietly and secretly, but no more than 10, 15, 20 people the most sometimes, you know, outside of Istanbul a little bit, very quietly, you know. Um, and and then in the 50s, uh, Saladin Hepper went to the municipality of Konya and convinced them to allow the Sema to be begin again as a tourist attraction. That's the only way they would hear about it. But he held out until they allowed the permission to recite the Quran also at the Sema. And so slowly in the early 50s, a few people started to turn and then a few more, and then it went into the sports center and it became a, a kind of tourist attraction. You know, it was it's supposed to be the zikr of the Mevlevi, but it's something else, and and there's so many factions now around it that no one can actually define, you know, who's in charge or what's supposed to be done with it. But at the same time, in the early '60s, you know, the the Jirahiteka was opened. Muzaffar Effendi opened the doors. He said Faradin Effendi was still alive, but he was sick, and Muzaffar Effendi was the sheikh, and he said, and he said, I'm opening the doors. And he did, and he created a foundation that was uh, for the study of, of ancient dervish music, ilahis, you know, that was sung through the whole Ottoman mm-hmm. Empire. And, and so that foundation is what we go to now. Um, and, and the repetition of those ilahis is a, a study, you know, of, of what things were in the past. Mm. Mm. I didn't realize it was Muzaffar Fendi himself who, who did that. Yeah, so you were then, you were probably one of the, so did, was your, like, taking the path with Muzaffar Fendi, was at the same time as you're taking the path of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and becoming Muslim? Was that concurrent? I first entered... Islam through Tasawwuf, through mm-hmm. Sufism. And after a while, I then took hand as a Muslim. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Right? But I had a big taste of, and mm. after a while I realized that I love this Sufism, mm. but I'm not going to see this door open any further than it is unless I embrace Islam. When I realized that, I knew I had to embrace Islam. Yeah. Many people embrace Islam immediately. In my way, I'm just saying the way yeah. it happened to yeah. me. I came through the door of Sufism. Mm. And I think a lot of people in the West of my generation mm. came through that door. Later, I think people just embraced mm. Islam and then discovered Sufism afterwards. Mm. Um, but when I first did the book on the whirling dervishes, uh, there was on the bookshelves in the New York books, there were only a couple of spiritual bookstores. Samuel Weiser was one and there was a couple of others. Um, there, there was only a two, three books on, on Mevlana on the shelves. There was Nicholson's translation of the Mathnawi and then Arbery, who was Nicholson's mm -hmm. uh, student, had translated some verses also and and um Rafihi Mafihi and and that was really about it and a couple of little things that people had written that Ashraf in Pakistan mm. had published and they drifted into mm. into the western bookshelves. Inayat mm. Khan and Idris Shah, those were probably you know those kind of But Idris Shah later. Inayat oh, Khan okay. of course was earlier. Uh, Idris Shah Sort of got popular with with stories on 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 Hoja Nasr mm -hmm. on Mullah Nasr you know, and people say, "Oh, these are great stories," and they were great stories. Mm -hmm. They still are great stories, um, but his popularity came through that. But Anaya Khan came in, I think nineteen twenty or twenty seven, yeah. something like that, and and was teaching in California, but not necessarily teaching Islam right. with with. The outward expression of Islam. Right. He he explained that I think later, mm -hmm. and and although he prayed five times a day himself and he was a Muslim and of course he you know, he introduced it in a, in a more gentle let's say way right. to a Western audience that had no idea about Islam. Sure. Uh, so there were some books that Anayat Khan had done that came through the East West Publishing in in. Europe, mm -hmm. uh, and then found their way into the States. And then I did this book on, on the whirling dervishes. And now, I mean, the shelves are flooded with books on Mevlana and books on Sufism and on, mm. you know, the Mevlevi and... Yeah. And so, yeah, so in the 70s, there's very little. Um, and so you basically come and you're you know, in the company of Muzaffar Effendi. And then eventually, like a few years later, you be, you become Muslim, like officially, right? And then Muzaffar Effendi comes to America in the late 70s, right? He starts coming. 78, I believe. And he kind of comes like every year for, through the early 80s until he yeah. passed away. Well, he passed in 85. Mm. And so were you there for those... All of them. All of them. Yeah. And what was that like when he would come? Well, for, for, for those of us who had taken hand with him, had become part of, you know, that system of belief and, and, mm -hmm. and were Muslims and were praying and going to mosque and going to Juma and, you know, um, doing Ramadan. And, and, and um, Of course, it was great because it was our, our teacher was coming to be with us and he would come and 
And those days we would just spend day in and day out, you know, all day long. You know, we wouldn't go to work and we would go and sit with him all day and all night and several nights we would make zikr and sing and like this. And it was, it was sort of, you can't do it today. For example, you know, the people in charge today of such a thing have 500 people that want to make a zikr every night. Well, you can't take 500 people for coffee mm-hmm. and just make sort of sohbet with them. It's not possible. You know, when Muzaver Fendi was around, there were 12 to 15 people we went for coffee at night. Mm-hmm. That's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, 500 is not possible. Mm-hmm. So things changed, and, and, and I think it's harder today to be the leader of a, you know, a Sufi order or a Sufi you know, presentation in some way than it was in those earlier days, even though... They had to go through certain struggles, mm-hmm. you know, to, to even make make it emerge again, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in some way. I mean, don't forget in, in Turkey, until 1947, from, from the time it became a republic, nobody could go to Hajj. You know, 1947, they went to Hajj. 48, they closed it again. 40, 49, they opened it. And since 49, people have been able to go to Hajj. So... It was a difficult time, you know, mm-hmm. in, 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 uh, in, for Islam within, even within Turkey, you know. Within, mm-hmm. And so, but I know that when Muzaffar Effendi would come, there would be large audiences and they would do zikr in like big churches and things. So how was that reception and how, how do you think, like how did he like America and how was the reception he loved America. Mm. And he always said, I love America because the people ask questions. Mm. He's, they want to know. And they, they don't let you stop, you know. And he loved that. And he was fed by the fact that we ask questions all the time. And, you know, we'd ask deep questions about life. We didn't ask whether we should paint our door red or green or be partners with somebody in business. We asked real serious questions. We were all, we were all in some form or another we were in some kind of a spiritual path before we touched that. Mm-hmm. So we had certain experiences, like me- whether it was meditation or whether it was, you know, prayer or whether it was whatever form it came in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he loved that, and he loved American that way. And he loved going to the St. John of the Divine in this huge open space, have 2,000 people there. And at some point in the closed zikr that just the people he brought with him would make it he would stand up with his arms raised and sort of wave people just come come in come in and join mm-hmm. us right mm-hmm. and you'd have like two thousand people in these circles you know um a few of them it stuck you know mm-hmm. it's like anything else you mm-hmm. know and some of them like in new yorkers are very cool you know hey i went to a zikr last night and it was really cool and tonight i'm going to the tibetan thing and mm. friday night i'm going to the buddhist you know mm. so it was like that that energy was always there so they participated in that and i, I would say almost a, a small percentage of those people that would come and experience that actually became muslims and and sufis like that right yeah, that is a curious thing, and it's almost like, you know, you think of the so many people, you know, in those days from your generation, really spiritually seeking, and, and you know, like a buffet, kind of taking a little from here, a little from there, and sampling all these different traditions, but 
when it really comes to committing to a specific path, not just Islam, but there's, you know, it's a small minority that can you know, committed to any path. It mm-hmm. seemed, you know, it, it was kind of like a spiritual tourism. And then, but at the same time, a lot of, you know, mindfulness and meditation is now in the boardrooms and in the juvenile hall they teach mm-hmm. meditation to the you know to young you know men and women and and yoga is on every corner and rumi is top selling poet so there is a permeation of the culture uh even if it's a, on a more superficial level than what some of us you know are seeing you know are feeling like these great masters actually calling to but yeah I'm curious what you think about that as well well I think that this this is true this exists but but and and I think it's good for all those people and I think the people that just think Mevlana is the poet of love you know and are enamored by that that's fine for them mm-hmm. you know but Mevlana was the is the poet of love you know mm-hmm. but he's the poet of metaphysical love and nothing Mevlana ever, ever said or did was not based on the Quran or the Hadith of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the people that don't see that see another part of it. They see a surface part of it. They love the poetry and they like, you know, they think, oh, the poet of love, how wonderful. We should all love each other, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, and, but it's a much deeper thing than that, you know. That, that you love each other because we're the creation of the one we love. Mm-hmm. The creation of Allah. That's that's why we love other people and plants and flowers and things because they're the creation of Allah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's the love of Allah that introduces how to love humankind. Or maybe we learn to love humankind and then we can somehow connect that to Allah. Mm-hmm. But it's it, Rumi was involved with the love of Allah. Through the love of Allah, he loved mankind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's really nice to go to the Jirahi uh, Teke, the Jirahi Lodge here in Istanbul when I'm here. And it's one of my favorite kind of zikrs. The zikr is so, so many parts, and it's like development, you know, movement and chanting and reciting Quran. And, um, but it's also nice to see you there because you're now you're one of the elders. You're one of the more senior members of the order and you've been part of it for you know 40 years or, or, or something like that and you're you know in the minority of those who maybe even met Muzaffar Effendi now or knew him closely and uh, so it's really interesting to just see and to see like the the respect and the reverence that people have for you um, so yeah maybe you could just speak about the fact that like yeah, and you mentioned to me once too, like when we were talking about Muzaffar Effendi coming to America and the, the effect he had, and you're saying like, well, there's not a lot of Americans that are here right now. There's It's one, and you're here too. You're the second right now, you know. Um, so, yeah, just being part of this order in Turkey, you know, in this, in this way and living here, you know, maybe you could share a little bit about that experience. Well, when I retired from teaching at the American University in Cairo after being there for 20 years, <clears throat> we, we could have gone anywhere. I mean, our children were all grown and married and, and mm. those responsibilities had 
if, if not eliminated, diminished. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I so, sort of chose, I wanted to live in Istanbul because I wanted to be close to Mevlana. I wanted to be close to Zikr and remembrance of Allah. Not to say that you can't be close to remembrance of Allah anywhere in the world that you are. Of course you can, you know. But there are great reminders here. Um, it, it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. You can walk down the street. There are beautiful mosques. There's great calligraphy on buildings. There's just reminders. There was a time when the Muslim would walk down the street and everything he saw or touched or smelled or ate had to do with Islam. You know, he'd hear the call to prayer through his, his hearing. Mm -hmm. He would be able to say the prayers. He would, mm -hmm. All the five senses were enjoined in, mm -hmm. in the experience of living in that city mm -hmm. and hearing and seeing and feeling and touching and being in that environment. And I think it still exists to the degree that you can bring something to it. Mm -hmm. You know, otherwise, it's like in, sometimes in Cairo, I would hear people complain that were not really um, active Muslims just complaining that, oh, I wish the muezzin wouldn't be so loud with a megaphone. It wakes us up in the morning, you know. Um, so you have that balance everywhere. You know? um, for me, I felt I wanted to spend my last years here uh, and, and be with people who are of like mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, <clears throat> I think uh, you've been very generous with your time and we'll, you know, if we can, we can link to some of your work. But, you know, you're um, prolific in um, a multitude of mediums, right? You're an author, painter, photographer, um, filmmaker, um, and, uh, you know, I think... I've read not only this uh, Winter's Harvest, which is your memoirs, but uh, when you hear hoofbeats, think of a zebra, right? That was your first or one of your earlier ones. And then also the, a book about the whirling dervishes. The Forgotten Message. Yeah, that's a, that's a re more recent one, Forgotten yeah. Message yeah. about Rumi. So you've written a couple books about Rumi, you've, one about the whirling dervishes, uh, and you made a film about Rumi. What am I forgetting? There's others, right? <laughs> a few things, but it doesn't. I don't like to think of myself as as a writer or a painter, uh, a designer, educator, yeah, designer. you know, photographer. I I don't like to think of myself as that. What I like to think of myself as a person who writes and photographs and paints mm -hmm. and like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's important that we make that separation. You mm -hmm. know that. You're a person first, and that you, these are some of the things that you do. Mm -hmm. And my whatever art I do as a painter or a photographer, I'm 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 really doing in a sense to understand myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm not that interested. I've had some shows, but I'm not that interested in having shows. I'm not that interested in selling work. I've had other ways of making a living. I've been a t professor and 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 educator and. Uh, a graphic designer, you know, and, and but um, what I what I feel strongly is about is that one can understand oneself through art, mm. and that it's a medium that speaks not only to others but to yourself. Uh, so I use the art that 
comes out of me to also understand certain things of my own inner nature and my own being. Mm. Uh, so Beautiful. That's a beautiful note to end on. Jazakallah um, khair for your time. And uh, we look forward to you sharing more of what comes out of your being, inshallah. Inshallah. So.